Welcome to the third episode of VSML Renaissance Recaps from Reality TV Warriors. My name is Michael Harmstone, and joining me as always is the Canadian whose conversations never seem like interrogations, Logan Saunders. Good afternoon. Good afternoon. We are nearly halfway through this season already. I guess so. There's only eight episodes, right? Yeah, it's, it's basically like one of our Belgian seasons. We're just cutting it down to eight episodes this season because we can't be asked doing two of them. <laughs> or I guess nine if you include the... Well, I guess I guess they can't really do a live reveal. I've got a feeling they're only going to do like eight episodes with the reveal at the end. Yeah, they've not actually said anything about it. I don't think they've announced a live event, which makes me think there isn't going to be one. But I'm not sure whether they're going to do what they did for China and have a a um, a live but no audience reunion. All the indications seem to be pointing towards a no, though. It seems to be pointing towards they've done a pre-recorded reveal, and that's just going to appear in the last episode. Because... When you th- I mean, when they did the China finale, that was pretty early on in COVID, wasn't it? That was before a lot of lockdowns were in place? That was March 14th, so it was basically just after the Netherlands had banned gatherings. I think they had two days' notice to not be able to do the finale. Yeah, so yeah, that means that was even before we even shut down the bars and restaurants in Canada. I think that wasn't until three days later on St. Patrick's Day. So it's definitely before the new normal, as we now know it, uh, occurred. Anyway, back to a country that actually did start um, with a lot of coronavirus, Italy. And a, a weird episode, I would say. It's a weird episode because they do really well pot-wise. Yeah, it just felt quite odd, this episode, I would say. and. Annoyingly, I do actually have to start with a couple of corrections because nobody has pointed this out to me, but actually pretty much all my figures for the past two weeks have been wrong um, because up to the end of last week, they could have been on €12,222.50 and not um, 10222 I think it was, I said. And up to that point, they should have actually been on 2610 but I forgot to add in Horace's missing €250. Euros. Like I said, I was going to in week one. So... The numbers are correct as of this week. I've made sure of it. I did double-check them this week. Makes it easier when Horace officially adds it into the pod as his final wish. It really does. But yeah, I was a little bit mortified when I realised how wrong I already was after two episodes on the figures. Especially when at the start of the episode, Rick goes, oh, it could have been more than 12,000 euros. And I'm like, no, it couldn't, Rick. You're wrong. No, no, it definitely could. I'm just wrong. <laughs> <laughs> No, you're wrong, Michael. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I hold my hands up. For once, I am wrong. I'm very rarely wrong on, on our podcast, but uh, I am wrong this time. And there was another thing you were wrong about, which happens at the very beginning. That chair that Al, Ellie sat in meant nothing. Yeah, it means absolutely nothing, which is weird. And one other thing I do have to start the episode with is that it is Mr. Saunders's 250th podcast. I guess it adds up after seven years. (laughs) Spoilers, it actually isn't your 250th, because we've recorded a few of the Belgian South African ones now, but this is officially your 250th podcast. (laughs) So I already did 250 before. Yeah, but it's going to end up being weird maths if I say say that that episode was your 250th when it actually wasn't, especially when in a few weeks' time we do the Vidum one that's our 250th together, and it's like, You'll hear our 250th before Logan's 250th. It's like, no, that's not going to (laughs) happen. Let's just actually do it in numerical order. And yes, this is your 250th. Well, it's flown by. (laughs) It's coming up on seven years now, which is bonkers. It is bonkers. So, previously, the final nine second chances revisited a Japan challenge with very minimal results, but a yoker for Ellie and Nadja. At the laser game, Yeroen pushed them across the finish line, but someone picked up a negative note, minimising their winnings. A quickfire quiz challenge saw Patrick being given the choice as to whether a black exemption entered the game, but he chose the money instead. Before at the execution, Ellie won a surprise exemption for choosing the right chair, while Nadja was the second person to get sent home again. And we begin the episode in a rare non-challenge scene for Vidim, with everyone relaxing in the cafe, toasting to Nadja. And Ellie explains her choice to take the random chair by saying she was raised to wait for others to sit down and never thought that her mother's life lesson would win her an exemption. Now, given that this is a um, a rare non-challenge scene for any Vidum season, I do have to point out some very entertaining bits to this. Namely that Ron seemed to have not been drinking out of a glass and was instead drinking out of a red wine bottle. 
And Nikki was the only one drinking anything other than alcohol. She was drinking tea. I guess she doesn't drink? Especially as they go straight into another challenge right after this. And Ellie, oh, but they have the discussion over who's the new treasurer. Yes, the only reason that this scene was actually included was the fact that they do have a discussion over who should be the new treasurer, and they choose Ellie after an incredibly confusing vote. That Horace tried to orchestrate. Horace tries to orchestrate a lot of confusion this week. Yeah, this episode was entirely around Horace, basically. Which is really weird given he goes home, because usually when we say those sort of things, it's someone who's going to be a major character in the season. Whereas this time it was like, no, Horace goes by the end of this episode. Horace isn't really noticed too much in the first two episodes, and then front and center the whole episode, and then he's gone. He's third boot from the season. So Rick actually introduces himself and says that they call olive oil green fluid gold in this region. Whether the trees are as valuable to the contestants remains to be seen. Apparently the pot could have been at more than €12,000 by now, and he's right because I miscalculated in week one. They could have earned €12,222.50 by this point. And the episode is called Decision. Let's do it. We begin on day five in Pienza. Jeroen suggests making a bond with Ellie, and she admits that she's had an offer from Patrick already, and she's not committed as she's still a bit suspicious of him. They both want to reach the finale and want as much information as is possible. But by the end of the conversation, she is in classic Ellie style, completely non-committal. I think if you get approached with the bond, you automatically say yes. It's like the rule of improv. If somebody says, hey, I'm going to share information with you, you always say yes. Yeah, the risk of rehashing my rant from last week, you don't turn down a bond because you never know when that bond could become useful. And having it's funny that she tells both people like this is kind of a tri- like a a bond triangle because I'm definitely have a bond with both of you. <laughs> yeah, it, it's very interesting that Ellie seems to be the center of attention for this entire season so far. It makes me think that Ellie is either going to end up being winner or mole. I have a feeling that somebody in this triangle is increasingly likely to be the mole, just because of how much attention like last week we've dealt with this whole. Who is Ellie going to bond with? She kept getting approached. And then this week, that's like every non-challenge scene was about Ellie's bonds. So I'm thinking, your own Patrick and Ellie are all get a spiking on my suspect list. It seems very odd to put this much, much attention into specifically this storyline for it not to produce a mole. It's also very fun later in the episode Ellie actually references this but those three are also the only non-straight candidates interesting so it's just another way for I guess for people to create bonds with something they have in common right a major thing they have in common yeah they also don't usually cast even in a a show that casts so well as Vidim they do still usually have a token non-straight person there isn't usually more than one so the fact they have three especially out of just eight contestants is quite an achievement in contrast to Big Brother 22 All-Stars, where there is currently eight contestants, and there is one black person in the cast, and I... Oh no, oh no, two people left. They're both expected to be the next two boots, and the rest are white. There are technically three, um, three black people. Oh, Kevin, right. And they're all expected to be the next three to go, and the final five is projected to be five straight white people. <laughs> Classic Big Brother. So we then just cut to everyone chained to olive trees on top of a mountain, and Rick quite wonderfully does his introduction with everyone literally behind him, because you can see Tico (laughs) straining at his chains. And they can win €2,000 by unlocking the padlocks on their chains and claiming the money in little tubes within 30 minutes. However, the notes in the tubes have other people's names on them. To earn the money, the person whose name is on them has to be holding the note by the end of the time limit. Each person can only be holding one note at a time unless it is their name. Obviously, very visual challenge, tough for us to discuss. However, I do have a couple of little points to this one. Um, There's two potential tactics I can see. You either work on one key at a time or one lock at a time. There's no other way really to do that sort of an idea. They don't make the challenge rules wonderfully clear to us on this one, which is annoying. There is a graphic, I know, but it literally just shows the circles of where people can stretch to. And it took me a good five minutes to try and work out what they actually had to do with the name notes. Um, and also, more importantly, Tico really wants to make his arm cross thing a, a thing. He does it three times in this episode. And Tico was put in the center for some reason, so he got to do 
I was thinking if you're the mole and you know Tigo has the run, has to run the most, just find each note individually just so he gets slower and slower and gets fatigued throughout the 30 minutes. Yeah, I I suspect that the mole had to be on the outer ring. I don't think Tico could have been the mole in this challenge. However, it was very much mold, given the maths of this entire challenge. But it's got to be someone who was kind of shielded from the rest, because I have a feeling that the mole probably didn't unlock all of their tubes, for example. No, they definitely concealed at least one. But having said that, there was at least two people who were moling in this challenge, because spoilers, they end up earning 1,300 euros of a possible 2,000, plus Horace's missing 100 euros. And on top of that, if you work it out mathematically, everyone had to have 250 euros in their name and 250 euros on their poles in the three tubes. Which means that Ron was missing a 100 euro note, Jeroen was missing a 100 and a 50 euro note, Ellie was missing a 100, Patrick was missing a 100, Peggy was missing a 100, Horace was missing a 100, Tico wasn't missing anything, and Nikki was missing a 50 euro note. What was the saga deal with the saga over the ripped note? My god. <laughs> I like how, like, T- who does Tigo tear into? Is it... It's your own. Your own? Yeah. Tigo tears into your own, and, and then Nikki's like, it's actually much more interesting to observe the attacker rather than the attacked in this situation. Yeah, the other important thing is the fact that Yeroen does get a hundred note from Tico, but as he's being handed it by Tico, the note rips. He puts it in his pocket, but then doesn't declare it at the end. So actually, he did get all three of his notes. He just wants to see how Tigo and everyone else is going to react to this. Yeah, but the thing is, looking at this cast just completely independently, you're not going to make Yeroen the mole. I'm sorry, you're not. He was second boot in his season, and he really is not a memorable character on that season either. You see some unorthodox strategies throughout this episode, not just by Yeroen, but also by Horace. Horace is like, I'm just going to make the vote as confusing as possible for Treasure. And then his little stunt that he does right before the quiz, which I'm thinking, hmm, not too many endgame players in the mole would really do tactics like that. No, you have to consider the fact that Horace has never made it past episode three before. He was third boot last time, and he's third boot this time. Yeroen was second boot last time, so he has no experience of really getting past more than one quiz. And it's making people make a lot of silly mistakes, I think. I am reasonably confident that Yeroen isn't the mole, purely because he's probably the most forgettable person in the cast based on his previous experience, and you're not going to make him the mole in a Jubilee season, in my mind. And I'm fully aware that someone will play this back if he does end up being the mole in five weeks, but I can't see it right now. He's also was a bit too far into the limelight with the rips and with the whole rips note saga that's not a very subtle thing for them all to do and to share it with their bond saying hey i have this ripped note i'm not going to declare it let me hang on to it for now no and also on the other hand you then have tico being inspired by ellie loose last week and just interrogating him at lunch which kind of shows the old tico that i didn't particularly like in season 14 just kind of coming out again where he's just a little bit needlessly aggressive and a little bit kind of too shouty at people. Yeah, there's a lot of people who do some fairly fairly out there things. Nothing nothing too subtle about a lot of what goes down. Yeah, I saw someone on Bothers Bar earlier say that this was the best episode of the three so far. I don't think it was. I think last week was better. This one is just a bit odd. Not in the same way that the premiere was odd, because the premiere did have a really odd vibe for a premiere. But this one just has loads of people making really weird choices. See, and I thought this episode was the best out of the three, too. Well, purely from a podcasting point of view, I would say last week was better because we had so much to say about last week. And to be honest, we had far too much to say about last week, given how much I had to edit. But it was really good challenge-wise. It was just a little bit weird, just purely from their behaviour. And I don't know whether the fact that it's a shorter season is playing on their minds and they're like, oh my god, I'm nearly halfway through already. How's that happened? It's just kind of a bit odd for me, this episode. I don't have nearly as much to say about this week as I did last week. Or, oh, the fight during the challenge over the tube, where Tigo wants to open the tube and Patrick yells at him not to. <laughs> yeah, because of that's literally the only way we find out that you can only hold one note that isn't in your name at a time. <laughs> 
Don't open the tube, Tigo. Don't open the tube until everyone is unlocked, because until everyone is unlocked, you can't really do much. We should also note that 100 euros was deducted from the pot because Nikki ex- um, exchanged 100 euros for eyeliner. That is true. Yes, she did. And I also love the fact that for some reason, they obviously love Ron almost as much as I did last week. They just show him collapse at the end. And he didn't even do get anything. <laughs> no, Ron is sneakily the funniest person in this episode, I think, because there's a, a moment in the last challenge as well, which just made me laugh so much. And it's not even Ron kind of wobbling on the log. It was something really sneaky that they kind of kept in with the camera angles that just made me giggle, which I'll get to fairly soon. So in the afternoon of day five, they had to Pitigliano. Rick greets half of them, Ron, Horace, Ellie, and Tico on the hills overlooking the town and gives them 2,000 euros for free. Production have painted some blinds red and those are worth minus money. There are 10 hidden around the town. All their job is is to open all the blinds within 30 minutes to be able to keep the 2,000 euros. The other four are already in the town. And the hilltop four are taken to two separate places, Horace and Ellie on one, and Tico and Ron on the other. And the town four split into Peggy and Patrick, with Tico and Ron looking after them, and Nikki and Euroan, with Horace and Ellie looking after them. And Patrick wants to team up with Peggy because she is his suspect. One thing that they don't that I wish they would include, I know with three challenges and I mean, it's, they still get, they still have an hour long episode, 60 minutes of running time, but we never see things determined. Like why is Tigo the one who gets to be in the center? How do they decide who were in the groups of four? It's one of those things that I always complain about with Vidim where there's just not the transparency that there is with Belgi. Or most, most, most versions of them all are a lot more transparent. Yeah. But I mean, our, our direct comparison here is, is going to be Belgium, especially when that's the seasons we've been covering either side of this. The lack of transparency is a real issue with Vidim for me, because you just kind of feel like production manipulates the team choices to help the mole out a bit and stuff like that, and it just doesn't feel like the mole is doing stuff based on their own actions, but rather what they're told to do. Which I know full well they are told to do all these things and all that sort of stuff, but it just rubs me the wrong way a little. I will say, though, I'm watching the Mexico season right now, and they do spend a lot of time explaining how they divide the people into the groups and the explanations for it. So my thinking is, like, with Survivor, how there's certain things that they edit out over time, and they just say, well, the audience has watched so much much Survivor that certain elements about the game or the environment and the fact that they're struggling at camp, that's all implied, so they don't show that anymore. But... I'm thinking if it's the same with Vidim, where where they're like, well, everyone's seen like 15 seasons of Vidim and probably Belgian Mole too. They know that we do all of these things to determine who's in what group. Do we really need to include those scenes anymore? And maybe that's just something they've decided. Hmm, maybe we don't bother including that in the final cut. Maybe it's too boring for the audience to see them decide who's in what group. And they just decide to edit out that entire discussion. But the problem with that is the fact that I would always argue, yes, you should be showing your audience stuff rather than just telling them and them trusting you. Because the trust is earned, but the trust is also very easily taken away if you take the piss with it. So like this, this would have taken two seconds to say, you guys are going to be on the hilltop, you guys are going to be in the town. But they just don't trust the audience enough to go, actually, this is how we determined it. Because... To be honest, it would take two seconds out of the ring time. Yeah, if they just said, we, by random draw. <laughs> yeah, they could even just do it as a voiceover. They could literally have Rick go, the contestants were asked to choose between whether they were an overlooker or a runner or something, like they do in Belgium Mole. I know I'm a broken record when it comes to Belgium Mole is awesome and Bidum is kind of okay, I guess, at the moment. But Belgium Mold does it a lot better because you just see the transparency a little bit better. I guess in Survivor 2, sometimes when they decide who's in what group for those post-merge team challenges, they'll say, oh, uh, this person was the captain, that person was a captain, and these are their two teams. And we don't even see how see the players getting picked. It's like, yep, they randomly divided themselves. This person was captain, that person was the captain. That's all you need to know. They could have done something similar here. Yeah, as much as I criticise Jeff Probst, and believe me, I do, he still has the foresight as showrunner to go to make sure in his script is, by random draw, these are the two teams. 
like he always makes sure to record that on location so they can use it if they need to. And they do still include him saying stuff like, we selected the teams by random draw, here they are. And then he just quickly runs through them. Like, that's all they need to do. They just literally need to tell us what the decision was that they needed to make. And then it makes a lot more sense and it feels less like production and manipulating. Where the mole is positioned. Yeah. It basically makes you think that the mole cannot be trusted to do these things on their own and has to be guided, which makes the mole less fun for me because you get less of the sneaky dickish sabotages if the mole isn't allowed to be free thinking. It's, it'd be funnier, though, if Rick did say that he's like, by the way, we split these groups based on where we thought the mole could best sabotage this challenge. <laughs> oh, no, that, that, that would be really fun for them to do that. But having said that, <laughs> I think they'd only do it once because people would then cotton on to who was always in a position where the mole could sabotage. <laughs> I think it is probably reasonably fair to say that the mole was in the town for this one, for example. I wrote that, too. I'm like, if I was the mole, I think I'd be the one in the be the one running around. Given that three of the four most suspicious people were running around in the town, I think it's pretty fair to say that the mole was probably in the town somewhere. Yeah, I couldn't help but notice that too. I'm like, who had the 17 euros from the weight challenge? Ah, crap, they're all in the town. My two biggest suspects were in the town. Group two Group two was Nikki, Peggy, Naja, Tigo, and Yaron. And then Euron, Peggy, and Nikki were in the town, right? Uh, yes. Yeah, they were. And to be fair, I've pretty much ruled Euron out, given his actions in the first challenge. So I think it's basically Nikki, Peggy, or Patrick here did a lot of sabotaging. But that's the thing. This is such a ballsy sabotage. If the mole did close a couple of blinds, as we're led to believe, it's such a ballsy sabotage from the mole, because they literally could see them doing it. If they were eagle-eyed enough, they could have caught the mole in the act here. Just like in episode one, they could have caught the mole in the act removing the exemptions. My guess is they just probably tested enough to where they knew the two different pairs would be so focused on the other buildings. And because they needed, maybe with the binoculars, you had to look at such a specific coordinate that you would have to really be looking at a specific open building to see the mole. Uh, close the blinds. And then the other layer to it too, though, I think the tougher part is the fact that they would have to be in a partnership or a duo and be able to get away and close the blinds. Yeah, that that's the thing. I wish before we'd recorded this, I'd have kept an eye on who was leaving the buildings last, because I feel like it had to be whoever was leaving the building last out of the pair who could have sabotaged. Or they just whisper something to the family at a time, like, oh, you're going to want to close close those blinds. We don't need, Or we don't need them open anymore. <laughs> but I, I don't know how the the people on the hilltops didn't spot those blinds closing again, though. Because it, the thing is, they cannot have penalised them for the wind blowing them closed. It had to have been a mole action, that. It just wouldn't be fair to film this in November and not expect a Tuscan village to be a bit windy. <laughs> so therefore, therefore, they could not have penalised them for the wind. If it was a blind that they opened and the, the wind kind of slightly closed, they can't make them lose 200 euros for that because that's just unfair so it had to have been a mole action it's just how the mole managed to do it that i'm not entirely sure maybe they learned from like the past couple moles that they know they can get away with a bit more than than usual because there's some pretty blatant sabotages last season the mole didn't even get answered for the quiz until the final round so maybe they're actually the past three moles have been really um really gone undetected so maybe they're like hmm past four the one for um for oregon is the least suspected mole in dutch history i think they only got answered by one person on the final two tests and that was it to the point where they had to put in a hint halfway through the season to say that everyone was missing who the mole was did people catch on to that hint no because <laughs> Because they put it in a challenge that they should have won, and they didn't because of the mole's actions. <laughs> so, yeah, that is a really good mole, that one. It's basically after they had a really bad time with one of the moles getting found out in week two by all the audience. That was the Dominican Republic mole? That was Dominican Republic. And then since Oregon, all of the moles have been a bit sneaky. And much sneakier than they could have been, and they've never put in the blatant hints in the same respect that they did there. However, I have just spotted something in the notes that may hint how the mole was able to do it, if it is one of the two people that it could be in this challenge. Okay. 
So Peggy and Patrick spot a minus 200 euro blind and ask for the point of the challenge because nobody seemed to understand it. And Tico ends up snatching the walkie-talkie of Ron, which is wonderful, and I am going to make that a gift before this episode comes out because it did make me laugh so much. It's the next note, though. Patrick gets resourceful and uses a broom to open the blind. He could have closed it with the broom. Exactly my thinking. Because Peggy wasn't there. Peggy was inside the building when he opened that blind. Which means either he closed it again with the broom, if, if it's one of Peggy and Patrick, either he closed it with the broom, or she went up and asked the family at the same time, can you close this after we go, please? That would have been the only duo who would have been who couldn't account for each other. Hmm, that's what I mean. Like, I'm still very much in a tunnel busy with Nikki, obviously, because I'm me, until she goes home I will be. But, having said that, this has kind of given me a little bit pause of thought, because I know Patrick has earned a lot of money, but he was best placed out of all of those people to sabotage easily on that, I think. And that would account for at least 200 euros of of the 400 that's, um, that disappeared from, from their pile. So that's really interesting. I've just literally thought of that as you were talking. Yeah, and I'm still, like, I have Peggy as my top suspect, so it's funny that the most suspicious people were the ones who couldn't account for each other. So the heavens then open, and Patrick and Peggy open a second blind, and Yeroen and Nikki are less successful, shall we say. <laughs> Peggy says it's uncomfortable to knock on a stranger's door and disturb them while they might be watching TV, and Patrick's glasses start steaming up. Which does make me giggle. And then we get a traditional... This was filmed in like October, November, right? Uh, Yes, it was late October, early November last year. Yeah, so it's like, hmm, Tuscan weather, probably not the greatest. Because even at the end of the challenge, you can see Rick's breath when he speaks. <laughs> yeah, I know I pointed that out as well. I'm like, oh, that's not good for him. <laughs> he must have been freezing. Especially when it was like raining pretty damn hard towards the end of the challenge and you have these people having to go into the houses with wet muddy shoes <laughs> to open up their blinds those those families were like ah we shouldn't have accepted to participate in a dutch television show <laughs> also as much as i don't want to stray from my nikki suspicion peggy saying it's uncomfortable to knock on a stranger's door is an interesting quote because that could be a mole confessional where she says it's uncomfortable to knock on a stranger's door. However, these people weren't strangers to me. And then we just cut to her with a an Italian family just like greeting them whilst Patrick doesn't spot her. By the way, is there a Mario here that can come to dinner with us? <laughs> <laughs> is there anyone who wants to pretend they're a Mario? <laughs> yeah. With all these we all these nameplates that we no longer use. I know it's not your name, but if you want to just pretend this is you, go ahead. So with four minutes left, uh, Patrick and Peggy have got four of them, and Nikki and Yeroen have two. Just before the time runs out, they open another one, meaning they earn 1,400 euros of possible 2,000. I actually have in my notes, it looks very cold when Rick's doing the debrief, and he says that only five blinds were open, meaning that Ellie owes him 1,000 euros. That means that two of them were closed, perhaps by the wind, or perhaps by the mole. They don't like to be in the cold for Vidim. I'm trying to think of all the locations that they've used over the past ever <laughs> i can actually answer that pretty concretely the last cold location they used was iceland in 2012 yeah that's a while i can see why you don't want to use a cold location it's just not as fun and even better it wasn't even supposed to be iceland that season it was meant to be morocco and spain because the last half of the season was in spain it was meant to be morocco and spain but that was the year of the arab spring so they ended up having to quickly change the first half of the season to go to iceland instead they never use cold locations deliberately so it was only like half a half of a backup replacement season was in a cold location. Yeah, the one before that was Northern Ireland, which they went to pretty much around the same time of year. And Northern Ireland's always cold, as as you well know. Actually, we never went to Northern Ireland, did we? we went to um, to Dublin. The airport was close to Northern Ireland. <laughs> well, yeah, everything relatively to Canadians is close. Um, yeah, Northern Ireland is not particularly warm all year round. And that was another half of the season. That was Northern Ireland and uh, and Jordan in 2009. That yes. was the last actual cold location that they went to, willingly. And that didn't even occupy a full season. I mean, you could argue Japan, but Japan, I would not qualify as being cold. Unless you're in Hokkaido. They were in Nagasaki, which was would be like the warmest part of the country. Yeah, when did they actually go to Japan, though? When did they film it? Because I feel like it was not going to be a cold time of year. They usually film about May. It didn't look like it. Yeah, it could have been the summer anyway. Yeah, they they usually film around May. 
having said that, the most infamous cold location they've ever used was probably Australia in the first Celebrity season, season five. Uh, it was utterly freezing and miserable in Perth, and they spent most of the season in Perth. It was freezing in Australia? Yeah, they went in like Australian winter, and everyone was in big jackets for most of the season, and it was constantly raining. <laughs> oh, because they would have filmed in May or June like they usually do. Yeah, it was it was Southern Hemisphere winter when they filmed, and it was a miserable season weather-wise. Oh, they should have gone up north to, to Cairns. <laughs> Not do like one of the southernmost, one of the most southern cities in the country during their winter. <laughs> they definitely went to Perth. They ended that season in uh, in Bali, though. So even that wasn't a full season in a in a cold location. Bali may or may not be warmer than than Perth in May. <laughs> so they wake up on day six in Pienza. Ellie admits to Patrick that she's had a bond offer from Euroan. She says it's been a while since two men chased her. And she also reveals to him the story about the rip notes and the fact that Euroan still has it. And Rick says that the candidates are on their way to the Radicofani Fort, and that it is the last chance to earn money in Valdorcia, as the final seven will be leaving immediately after the execution to head to Florence. During the execution? Well, yeah, we find that out later, that it's actually during the execution. Uh, over 30 minutes, they can earn shields for a later part of the challenge. Each shield that they hit with a bow and arrow later is worth 200 euros for the pot. However, to begin with, they just have to open the door with a battering ram. Now, here's the funny bit that... I spotted, and I won. I wonder whether you spotted it as well, because seven of the people actually get on the battering ram. One person doesn't. Who was it? Who didn't? Ron just kind of stands back and watches. <laughs> and it's a recurring joke through this entire episode that Ron is just standing back and letting other people do work. It's so funny because we have Ron not getting anything in the. Um, the olive tree challenge. He gets money for himself, but he doesn't actually pass off any money and doesn't unlock himself properly. Classic Ron. You have the one bit of Ron in the um, in the blind challenge be Tico nicking the, um, the walkie-talkie off him and actually just basically saying, let me do it. And then in this challenge, you have Ron stepping back as people do the battering ram, because there's only seven handles, and literally his only contribution to this challenge, other than hitting one of the shields, is standing on the end of the log and nearly falling off and breaking his hip. It's so fun to watch Ron in this episode. So, in the first mini-challenge, they have to light four barrels using 14 torches thrown from above, and Peggy, Patrick, Helly, and Horace do this one. The second mini-challenge for the other four is to fill a glass vase with water to get a cork with a key on it, which unlocks the two shields. And it's Ron, Nikki, Tico, and Euron doing this one. How would you mole this challenge? I guess that's a t- they make the requirements pretty easy to pass it. I mean, obviously, the if you figure that everyone's going to be able to hit the shields with the bow and arrows, and I guess best ways to just limit how many shields you obtain initially. Yeah, the only difficult one of these million challenges is the fire throwing, basically. I don't think any of the other three are that difficult. Could it be that this is a challenge that the mold just didn't really try to... Like, they, the other two challenges would have been much easier to mold, because... They usually don't do it for every challenge during the game. There's some challenges where they're like, yeah, we'll, we'll try, I'll try fully as a contestant this time. Yeah, I feel like this challenge is one where the mole couldn't mole. This is one of the rare challenges ever where I can't see a path for the mole to actually successfully sabotage, other than maybe stopping their team winning all four of their shields. But even then, if they're on the if they're on Team A of Peggy, Patrick, Ellie, and Horace, it's not that difficult to keep missing torches and then their other one ends up being build a ladder which is brilliant television and brilliant for us recapping it i'll be honest but like you can't really sabotage building a ladder unless you want to break someone's leg yeah and the torch throwing i mean i mean it couldn't come out at the end of the season where they say oh yeah the mole just intentionally missed the torches or got them to throw with haste without any uh, haste to it and just didn't plan their throws at all i mean they could easily say that but it's just, it's such a it's such a minuscule sabotage. Yeah, even that though, like four out of fourteen is not great odds. If they were able to go down and grab the um, grab the torches and throw them again, then maybe it would be a a challenge you could sabotage. But the odds are, if you get three and a half throws each, you're not going to hit them. It's the only one where you're like, yeah, you're not going to win that one. It's just an easy four hundred euros for you to not win. The other element of this is the fact that everyone gets three arrows at the end, so you all have three shots on each of the targets. You're going to win a fair amount of money on this, regardless of what the mole does, I reckon. 
So, in the first mini-challenge, everyone struggles until Ellie, obviously being Ellie, shows everyone how to do it and throws hers like a dart and hits the first one. At which point, almost immediately, Patrick burns himself. And Ellie and Patrick manage to get one each, but it is not enough for them to win the shields. Wait, Peggy didn't get the torch? Nope. No, it was just um, just Ellie and Patrick who managed to managed to score. Shocker. So yeah. The third mini-challenge ends up being hanging rocks on the end of a seesaw to allow someone to climb up and untie the shields. Of course, Ron ends up walking on it gracefully. And Euroan at one point apologises for touching Ron's arse, and Ron says, no worries, me too. Which I think is a not great taste joke for Ron to make. Maybe it just didn't translate well. Yeah. Maybe there's something lost in translation between Dutch and English. I feel like if he was referring to Me Too, that's a little bit on the knuckle. But very Ron. It's classic Ron, but it's not particularly appropriate for him to say that. What? You mean an older older straight white man shouldn't be making jokes about the Me Too movement? Yeah, so Ron unhooks the two shields and they win again. But obviously, when they pass the other team, everyone else is carrying a shield apart from Ron, and I think it's Tico who is carrying two in another classic Ron moment. And the final challenge for the other team is to build a ladder to grab the shields off a gate. Peggy grabs them, and Ron doesn't understand the point of the challenge and asks if he's aiming for the shields, and he misses. And Peggy shoots second and misses, and Ron tries to explain to her how to actually shoot a bow and arrow. Tico shoots third and says that it's a great thing to do if you've got ADHD. He hits the shield, but it bounces off. Horace is fourth and says it's a boy's dream to shoot a bow and arrow, apparently. Not this boy. I've shot a bow and arrow before and it didn't do anything for me. Um, He misses. (laughs) It didn't excite you? (laughs) Yeah, it didn't spark joy. Um, Patrick's fifth. He says it feels like you have a powerful weapon in your hands because it's heavy. Did deliberately avoid making that your intro this week because I thought it was a little bit too obvious. He does hit a shield though. Ellie is sixth. Everyone has high hopes for her and it hits the ground two metres in front of her. And Peggy in a confessional says you'd have thought someone who went to a police academy would know how to shoot an aim. And all I have as a note there is yes, she knows how to shoot an aim. A gun, not a bow and arrow. There has to be a bit more gun control in the Netherlands for police officers to resort to stopping burglars and hardened criminals with a bow and arrow. I would be very surprised if anyone at Police Academy does a course in learning how to shoot a bow and arrow, because there's not going to be that much call for it, I would guess, in in the police force, even if you're a mounted police officer. (laughs) Just somebody. Can you imagine walking around Amsterdam and there's a police officer on a horse and they yell, Halt! Stop right there! Ah! It's the Dutch way of doing a taser. It's an electrified arrow that they just shoot in your side. <laughs> I've fallen into the canal. <laughs> or it's just, it's one of those toy arrows where it just bounces off you and bruises you. Like, I can't understand what the relevance of a police officer actually having a bow and arrow would be. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe it's like a... Maybe they're doing a renaissance fair or something in Amsterdam, so all the cops really play the part. They get all their lessons in the police academy. It's like, how to shoot a gun safely, how to make sure the safety's off, best shooting position with a gun, best shooting position with a bow and arrow, making sure to wear your arm guard in case the rope grazes you. Like It's all the important lessons that you learn at police academy in the Netherlands. It's equal parts gun control and arrow control. I remember, um, this is unaired footage from next week, but there's a challenge where they have to hit a target using a trebuchet, and then Ellie misses, and then Peggy says, what? They didn't tell you? They didn't? She went to a police academy and couldn't hit a target using a trebuchet? It's almost like Peggy's impression of of police officers stops in the medieval times. (laughs) It's like she went to medieval times in, uh, in America and went, this looks like real life. Or they're playing like, Super Metroid or like GoldenEye or something on the Wii. And then uh, Ellie keeps missing the shots during one of those challenges. And Peggy's like, oh, you mean she can't hit a target even though she went to a police academy? How could she not hit hit that guard while playing this 10-year-old video game? Yeah, I just don't understand what relevance Peggy thought that a bow and arrow would have to a a modern-day police officer. That doesn't follow the umbrella of Ether Discipline? No, it, it just... 
it doesn't fall under un, under Ellie's purview of like how to shoot a gun, a to discipline, making sure you don't you know stand on people's necks, all the important things that police officers learn in police academy. It just doesn't fall under kind of Ellie's ideal police academy. She must have just been off on the day when they were learning archery. It's really weird. <laughs> So yeah, Nikki's seventh up. She struggles to even put an arrow on the bow, but she channels her inner Katniss Everdeen and actually hits the shield. And Horace describes Nikki as a miracle. What's with Nikki referencing the Hunger Games this week? She's a little obsessed. <laughs> yeah, she gets chained up during the Olive Tree Challenge and she's like, it's just like the Hunger Games. I'm like, I don't remember the scene with being chained to an olive tree handing out money in Tuscany. I've got a feeling that Nikki referenced the Hunger Games in her first season, though, as well. I would have to go back to my Vidim 19 notes, or three episodes of them. Um, but I've got a feeling that Nikki really does love the Hunger Games and has made that reference before. However, if it, this may just be me being optimistic and thinking that they've maybe taken a leaf out of the Belgian production team. Maybe they're going to end up playing some Hunger Games music at some point, and this being a clue. Could be. I'm not particularly optimistic that they will and this may just be me talking having literally just watched the the rugby challenge with all the film scores but if this was belgium they would make that a clue and put some hunger games music in there yeah um so yeah we don't even get to see your own shoot but he didn't hit it and peggy hits on her second shot as to Horace and patrick and your does hit the final shield meaning they earn 1,200 euros of possible 1,600 for the challenge, 3,500 of possible 5,600 for the episode, and 6,110 euros of a possible 17,822 euros 50 cents for the season so far. Are you sure on the math on that one? Yeah, I'm pretty sure. I did go back and check it just to make sure, because I did make a mistake originally on that. Like, this was, as I was watching the episode, I made another mistake on that, and I'm like, how do I keep making mistakes on this money? And Rick just miraculously appears and scares the living bejesus out of everyone. And they finally spot who's on each note, and that Ellie is on the 250 euro note. Horace declares that he's seen a 250 euro note before, and reveals the money that he took in the old mall walk in episode 1, bringing the actual pot to 6,360 euros of possible 17,822 euros 50. And it is now time for the test. 20 questions on the identity and actions of the mole. Whoever knows least goes home, except for the mole who has gone home before, but not this time. I like how when Horace hands in the note, that everyone is just so confused why he did it right before the quiz... It's like, I think it made Horace less suspicious to... Ha That's what I wrote in my notes. It made Horace less suspicious to do it right before a quiz because it's just so blatant. It definitely did. But if he was worried about doing it, that's the only time he can actually do it because literally he's not allowed to hand it over when um, when he gets executed. So that 250 euros would not go in the pot if he hadn't handed it over then. It would have paid for his Ryanair flight back to Amsterdam. And the rest. It might have paid for him to, you know, do one of their scratch cards or go to the toilet. Have we mentioned that this episode's sponsored by Ryanair yet? Because it isn't. <laughs> it's not the worst if you pay for the priority booking. Or priority lineup. So Tico says he's debating between Ellie and Euron because she's so good at lying and can stop herself blushing. Ron says Peggy's cold-blooded and very intelligent, but also a bit in the background. And he says you're insane if you only have one or two suspects at this point in the season. He has three and a half. Classic Ron. <laughs> they're down to eight. There's only seven other people in the game. And Ron has it down to three and a half people. I don't even want to know what that means to count somebody as a half. Maybe on a 20, on a 20 question quiz, is it six questions per person and two questions for the fourth person? Nikki says she was on three people, Nadja, Tina, and Yeroen. Two of them are gone, so that just leaves Yeroen. Yeroen says Patrick is his mole. He lists everything and knows he's missing someone, and it's always Patrick. Patrick is on Peggy. She's always full of energy when asked who wants to do something, but it always turns out to be a good place for the mole to do things. Peggy says Ellie's conversations would always feel like an interrogation. She's never alone, and the mole would do that. Ellie says it's not always easy to pinpoint individuals to actions. It's the little things that are often sneakily done. Peggy's very fanatical, but if you follow the money, she didn't bring much in. Horace is always a little bit disguised. Horace says he's still in it, and he's on Ellie, Patrick, and Peggy equally. And at the execution, Rick announces to them that they'll be leaving Valdorcia after this execution, and while 6,360 euros is a good value, it could have been more than 17,000. He's right, it could have been 17,822 euros and 50 cents. 
I will say that this is a pretty good pod after three episodes. Like this, this episode was a very successful round for them. Yeah, last season pretty much didn't top six thousand three hundred and sixty euros at the end of the season. Like what? The last two episodes, final four or final five, I should say. <laughs> By episode four, they were on seven thousand three hundred and twenty in last season, but then they really didn't earn much in the last few episodes. Didn't help that Buddy intentionally threw Robin to throw away 2,000 euros. <laughs> so Euroan, Peggy, Nikki, Tico, and Ellie all get green screens and can leave immediately, whilst Patrick and Ron are sent down to the people carriers together, which means that Horace is the unlucky recipient of the third episode red screen again. And he is completely surprised that he's wrong. If it's who he suspects now, he says that they are a fantastic mole. Be funny if it wasn't that person. I think he's probably still wrong, knowing Horace. <laughs> Interestingly, do you know what Horace is actually famous for in terms of mole? No. Horace is the voice that we hear every episode saying, Trust nobody. Oh, oh yeah, that's we said that in the premiere. Because they kept saying that when he was around. Yeah, I actually thought it was someone else up until I googled it this episode. I'm like, Horace didn't say that. No, Horace did say that. Apparently it does come from Horace's three episode time in season 11. And I'd completely forgotten that. Um, so yeah, that's why everyone was saying trust nobody around Horace, because Horace is famous for saying trust nobody, and being the originator of the um, the trust nobody clip. Now he's famous for being executed third back-to-back seasons. Yeah, and I actually found an interview with him this afternoon um, that was done right before China, where he, he complained jokingly that he didn't get royalties from the podcast Trust Nobody for using his clip. And he's he's got no royalties from the show or from the um, the podcast name Trust Nobody for um, for originating that clip. Maybe if you actually do well in your season, you get some royalties. And the final seven are split into three people carriers, and each heads off on a different path at a crossroads. And the episode ends with a to be continued. Do you think that will matter? <laughs> I feel like we put so much into. Oh yeah, Ellie's definitely going to get an advantage for being um, safe at the execution last week. That this is probably going to be a damp squib of a twist. It's going to be like just going straight into the next challenge, and by picking the people carriers, they've picked what roles they have in the next challenge in Florence. That's that's all it's going to be. Well, yeah, I mean, we've learned that this is what the third is. This the third execution in a row where they still do a challenge later on that same day. Yeah, they seem to have compressed the filming schedule a lot for this season. So I was right about that? You were, but not for the reason you think. We're still on course for it to be about two and a half weeks, I think. I don't think I don't think it'll reach nine, uh, 18 days. I think it'll still be 16. Tina was executed day three. Nadja was executed day four in the evening. And um, Horace was executed on day six. Yeah, and there's eight rounds. So it's still going to get to about 16 days. Yeah, 16, yeah. Maybe a little bit more than that, depending on, on the actual structure. But yeah. In summary, we were both right, just not for the reasons we thought we were. Yeah, that's a pretty compressed filming schedule to eliminate somebody once every two days, no matter what. Because the average filming schedule is like 20, 21 days, right? Yeah, it's it's 10 shows, 21 days-ish. I think China was 20, if that helps. Yeah, so Verdum and Belgium essentially have the same schedule. Yeah, it's it's more of a Belgian schedule than a a Dutch one purely because there's less episodes but it's looking like it's going to be a little over two weeks between two and two and a half weeks by the look of things yeah I think it's I think 16 days is where it's going to finish off at which is quick <laughs> so in our pool with Horace going Michelle's lost her first candidate meaning she's just down to Ellie and Ron my team is still Nikki, Tico and Patrick and yours is Peggy and Yeroen with our first suspicions update Ellie, Ron and Tico are now more suspected by us than the group as a whole and Patrick is now dead even between the two groups, between everyone else and us. Your team is 3.41, an average out of 6. Mine is 3.27, and Michelle's 2.18. Adding us in makes yours 3.25, mine 3.33, and Michelle's 2.25. Now, who are your two suspects, Mr. Saunders? We're going down to two already. <sighs> two. Really wanted to keep it at three. <laughs> you want me to make it three for the for this week only, and then Ron we'll... was allowed three and a half. Go on, you can, <laughs> you can have three and a half suspects, but you're only allowed to name your half with half of their name. Okay, so, uh, so let's do two and a half. I'll go 
Peggy, Euroan, and Pa. <laughs> this is such a stupid fucking joke. Um, <laughs> in that case, I'm going to go in some order, because I'm just kind of spitballing this. Nikki, Peggy, and Pa. So we only have one difference between us. It's just Euroan switched for Nikki. Yeah, Euroan... I just can't take seriously as a suspect after this week when he made it so blatantly obvious and got caught trying to throw suspicion on himself. And a mole would never try and willingly throw suspicion on themselves. Not in week three. Whereas I feel like I, I feel like nobody has outwardly said they're suspecting Nikki yet, which is a good sign that it could be Nikki. Because they very rarely show people actually suspect the mole. Unless it's a really obvious one. And like this week we had two people who were suspecting Peggy. Not that I don't, but I feel like they wouldn't show so many Peggy suspicions if it was her. But it's also just during the quiz too. I don't know what how much what people say during the quiz really influences the audience. Yeah, I don't know. The the top suspects in um in the Netherlands is in order Ellie, Peggy, and Nick. If we're having two and a half suspects. Ellie's number one for them? Uh, Ellie, when I checked earlier, was on 20%, Peggy was on 18 and Nikki was on 16 Yeah, Ellie's not on my radar at all. No, she's not mine either, and we're probably going to have egg on our faces, if it is her. <laughs> so have you got anything else you want to say? Nope. Cool. In that case, thank you for listening to our Vs to Renaissance recap. We'll be back next week to continue the hunt for the newest mall in Italy. Don't forget, you can contact us on Twitter, Facebook, YouTube, or Instagram, where we are RTV Warriors, or you can email us on contact at rtvwarriors.com. Logan is on Twitter at LogsofWacky, and I'm MJ Harmstone. Thank you, as always, to Marika for the subtitles, and we will see you next week. Peace out, and just chill till the next of flavoring. <laughs>